Please stand for the reading of God's word. Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 20. Yes. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it to us, that we may hear and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set you before you today life and death, death, life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and the length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are finishing a series that we've been in all fall, a series called The Gift of Obedience, and a spiritual formation teaching or series examining obedience, examining what obedience looks like, examining our desire towards obedience, uh, desiring uh, the power of which we receive obedience in pretty much every facet we could have. Uh, And appropriately, we conclude this teaching with the idea of the test of obedience, which I don't know about you, but tests generally bring up at least a level of anxiety in myself. Now, I actually was a very decent test taker uh, throughout life, but at the same time, there still exists in this idea, particularly in talking about the spiritual world of like, a, a test has a sense of, am I ready? Will I pass? Do I have what it takes, and am I enough? See, I remember actually um, first early test in which I succumbed to the pressure. Um, it was in kindergarten, and it was counting to 100. And uh, I don't know why. I could count to 100 very easily. It was not a problem for me. Uh, but you know, I get up to like 10, and they're like, "What comes after 10? 11." And then what? 12. And then 13. And then a gush woman, like, give me some, a break here. I can't take the pressure. I'm out. And I was out at 13. And the next, they gave it to me like a week later, and I don't know what happened. I counted to 100 just fine. And I, I can do it to, still to this day. Um, but I still grew up with this sense also the relating this idea of pressure and test towards God. And the idea that he was always putting something out in front of me 
that I was always failing ever so slightly or sometimes not so slightly. Maybe sometimes I could narrow the playing field to a small enough target to feel like I could obey in a certain area for a certain period of time. But eventually, it would all fail and come crumbling down. And so, the good news of the gospel is what struck me when I was 21, actually, of the idea that God is not actually sitting here waiting for me to pass a test, but rather has passed a test on my behalf, that the entire idea of Jesus coming to this world, living life, dying on the cross, rising again, is not just good. I've heard the difference of, it just explained as like good advice versus good news. Good advice being like, hey, there's a test coming. You should study. Hey, by the way, this test is tomorrow. You should go over your notes again. Hey, this test is going to be difficult. Here are the things you need to focus on. That's all very good advice. But good news is if your professor in college asks you to get up and takes the test on your behalf. And that was the difference of what I understood the testing of God to what actually is the testing of the gospel. That Jesus has taken the test and passed it on behalf of me. But then, as you walk through Scripture and walk through the idea of obedience and walk through the idea of God saying, hey, come and choose life, there's some tension that starts to emerge at some level. Because you see... There is a regular, repeated pattern throughout Scripture that God's people are tested. It starts in the garden with Adam and Eve. You have immediately a sense of, hey, you can have every tree, all the fruit from all the trees of the garden. But this one, the knowledge of good and bad, don't eat from it. Cain is tested, the son of Adam and Eve, who when he sees that God seems to favor his brother's sacrifice more than him, he kills his brother. Before that, it says, hey, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is to consume you. You see, Abraham tested. Abraham first is tested in the initial Genesis 12 when he's first called. He says, hey, I want you to step out of your family, out of your security, out of your home, and I want you to go to a land that I will lead you to, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham does. And then he's going to say, God's going to say to him, hey, I'm also going to give you a child, an heir, because you can't be a great nation if you do not have an heir. And though he, was, he and his wife were barren to this point, he said, hey, trust me that this will come. And then he has to wait. And it's actually 25 years later of waiting that Abraham begins to think, maybe this isn't going to happen. And he and Sarah take matters into their own hands. He sleeps with their maidservant. A childish male is born. And God says, no, this, this wasn't holding on and trusting in that I was going to be good to you. And so he then, God gives him a son, but then he says, hey, are you willing to give your son back to me, trusting I'll give him back to you? It's Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac, when Abraham's asked to go up on a mountain and sacrifice his son. 
And there's a whole lot of stuff that we wrestle with in that passage, and what does this mean about God's character? But here's the reality. Abraham was not worried about God's character at all in that moment. He was so convinced at that point that God could and would take care of him. It says later in Romans, it says like, hey, he sacrificed him knowing that even if he went to the point of death, he knew that God would raise him again from the dead somehow. You get Israel tested throughout the, the wilderness uh, when they are out and they have no water or when they are out in the uh, wilderness with no food and they're given manna and God says, hey, collect for six days, but on the sixth day do a double portion so you don't collect on the seventh day. Trust that you'll have enough. And then people go out there and they do what's right in their own eyes and some of them collect even too much on, one, on day one and too little and it says no matter if they collected too much or too little, it all evened out. They all had the same amount. And then those who collected on the seventh day, it was rotten, and it wouldn't, did not last. It was not edible. You get David tested with Bathsheba. You get Jesus tested. Matthew 4, 1, it's interesting. It says this, right after Jesus is baptized, the heavens part, it says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, immediately it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Not tricked into it by the demonic, but led by the Spirit to be tested by the devil, to be tempted. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this concept of like, hey, the test is, is fully passed in Jesus on your behalf, but yet this theme of, hey, test or, or come and trust in me. Choose life instead of death. That's what Moses is saying in the text that we read in Deuteronomy. It's after the people have wandered through the wilderness and they have finally come to the point of the promised land and they've been given the law once again. Deuteronomy is the second law is what that means and it's the second giving of the law. That's why sometimes you read it and you're like, hasn't this all been given before? Yes. Deuteronomy is a second giving of the law after they had disobeyed. It's a reaffirming in the covenant. And Moses, right before they go in the promised land, says, hey, I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. And so choose life. But it's funny, right? Before that, in chapters 20 and 30, he says, hey, when you turn back, because you have not yet been given eyes to see and ears to hear. It's this whole thing of like, hey, do hold on to these things, choose life, but you won't because you don't yet even have the capacity. But at the same time, he says, it's not too far from you. Choose life. Again, the tension starts to wrestle in our heads and, and we want to flatten it out to be like, well, is it that we don't have the ability or is it that we do have the ability and we just need to choose it and we can't choose it? And so... I want to wrestle with this tension this morning, not necessarily saying that we are going to bring it to a flattening out, because that's the whole idea of tension in the Scripture, is you have to sometimes hold together paradoxical truth. A paradoxical truth is something that feels like two things that cannot be true at the same time, but yet somehow are. One way that we hold on to this in the scientific realm is the idea of light. Light is a particle, light is a wave. Those things seemingly cannot be true at the same time, but yet they are. And so, what I want to 
wrestle with the tension or sit in the tension with this morning is something that we've talked about a few times throughout the course of this series, and it's this. That the same gospel that frees you from the guilt of sin, that frees you from the weight of the guilt of all that you have done, all that you will do, and frees you of the burden of having to be the full righteous sacrifice, that same gospel continues to work and free you from the power of sin. Because a lot of times I get in a place where I'm like, oh, thank goodness, I'm freed from the guilt and the weight of my sin and from the weight of needing to fulfill righteousness on my behalf. Thank goodness. But the gospel is not done at that moment. The idea of the Spirit of God then coming to live in you is not just satisfied with the level of like, hey, you are now freed from the guilt, but rather it's wanting to work through you to be able to actually choose life, to walk in the way that you and I both desire to do. I sometimes wrestle with, oh man, if I have to choose, I'm going to mess it up. At the same time, if I could, I would prefer to choose the fruit of the Spirit. I would choose to be a person who is marked more by these things like love, joy, and peace. But I find myself stuck. And so, in this idea that gospel frees us from the power of sin, let me ask you a question that maybe gets at the heart of that tension. How does the gospel do that? How does the Spirit do that, free us from the power of sin? Because on one side, in Deuteronomy, the Spirit's going to say, hey, Yahweh is going to come and He's going to circumcise your hearts, meaning He's going to take something away that is going to be blocking your hearts. There's something that has prevented you from seeing and doing what is right and good, and God's going to come and take that away, and He's going to give you a heart that fully loves Him, fully trusts Him. But then how do you get that written on your heart? I would say by looking at throughout the Scripture and some of the examples that we've mentioned, some of the examples that we'll look at, you get that through the endurance of pain, the holding steady to Yahweh, your God. It happens to the everyday but very real tests and suffering of real life. And you're presented with a choice in suffering and pain that you will experience. Will you trust that regardless of your circumstance, that God has you, that God is leading you, and that he will bring life out of even this? Because another way to sum up of what obedience and disobedience is, is disobedience is believing that what God says is not going to protect you. So, good news. You can do it. It's written on your heart. And we want to make that an autopilot thing. Like, okay, it's written in my heart. It's just going to happen. But it's not, which in lies the tension. So, just look with me here. A few examples, a few places in Scripture of what does that testing look like? Uh, what part do I have in it of gaining a heart of wisdom and passing the test? And here's a few things that I want to point out to you. The first... As I've mentioned, testing comes from the common experience of trials and suffering of life. And 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says this, 
Now, these things happened to them as an example. These things is actually talking about the testing that Israel experienced in the wilderness when they were going through and, and you know, grumbling for water and food, and yet they scorned God and they tested His patience, it says. It says, now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I want to focus on the idea of him not giving us a temptation of which we cannot withstand in a moment. But first, I want to focus on just a small part that I often overlook and maybe even struggled in exactly know what's talking about, where he says, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. In other words, the tests that you experience in life aren't these random things that God is just shoving in the system. They're simply the brokenness of this world that we all experience. Now, there's many different sources of where that comes from. Again, you get the brokenness of the world that we've all experienced and attributed to. The life, suffering, pain, death, sickness, decay brings in the concept of having to suffer and having to endure. Also, you get the evil of, of humanity. All of the testing of Israel, uh, when they are passing through the test of the Red Sea, when all Pharaoh, or Pharaoh and all of Egypt have said after the ten plagues, say, go out and go, you are now free, your God has shown that he is powerful, and I want you, we want you to go out and worship your God. And then they go out there, and Pharaoh changes his mind and starts hunting him down, and they're between water, which always represents death in Scripture, and Pharaoh with, I think it says 600 chariots, which is like the concept of tanks back in this day, so it's like 600 tanks are coming at them, and water, which is death, so it's certain death on both sides. And God says, stand there and watch. And he begins blowing, and a wind that blows through the night creates a pathway through death for them to walk through. But that test comes from the sense that Pharaoh is persecuting them. So it can come from brokenness of the world, it can come from the evil of humanity, it can come from the evilness of yourself. That Abraham is given a test of sacrificing Isaac. Where does that test come from? Because he decided to take matters in his own hands with Ishmael. He decides after 25 years, surely after this amount of time, I can no longer trust that God is now going to do good to me. And so he takes it into his own hands, and then that later requires and develops a test. And of course, you can have a test that comes from the opposer the Satan or the Satan. And God somehow both takes all of these experiences, all of these sources, and while they are naturally occurring in the brokenness of the world, he also then orchestrates them in some way to produce tests that invite us to choose life. How that all works together, I do not know. And I am comfortable sitting in the mystery of that. If you have to have that make sense, this often is this big concept of God's sovereignty over all things and humans' free will and ability to do what they choose. If you have to have those two things make sense, you will never be at peace. 
And so testing uh, through the common experience and suffering that God orchestrates, testing always brings life and develops character. That's the point of it. Why is God doing this? It's not just he's capricious. Hey, I just want to stick things in their way so that they slip and trip because life isn't hard enough. It's that he's always seeking to bring life and develop character. When you see developing character, so as I already mentioned, we all want character. We don't want to get on the pathway to get there. We don't want to experience the suffering in which it takes to be the deep soul, but yet when we see in movies or we see in life people who have true integrity and are righteous and good, we see that and we see that as honorable and we see people with no character and no integrity and we see that as deplorable. And so there's a part of our hearts that truly does want to have character. Again, we just don't want to have the suffering. And so testing comes up, these obstacles, the suffering, the pain of life, comes to lead us to the good life even against what we think it's going to be. Again, as people, we, uh, we want to take care of ourselves. We have this fundamental belief that if I don't take care of me, no one will. And so I need to do what is right to get mine. But testing... holding on to God or finding things that seem like they've all fallen apart and then God brings them back together is slowly learning a capacity to hold on the fact that maybe we can release ourselves of holding our lives together. And we can begin to believe in the things that even seem like they're going to bring death. Jesus says, hey, you want to follow me? Do you want life and life to the full? Come and pick up your cross. Pick up an instrument of suffering and death. Why? Because we're going towards life. That seems like bad advice. But maybe I can get to the point where I have seen my own wisdom fail enough and seen the truth and the reality of God coming and bringing life out of the death and destruction that I've created that I can slowly begin to release myself into the concept that I have a good and loving and true Father who's leading me to life even when it seems like it's not happening, even when it seems like the opposite is happening. In uh, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 3, it says this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, him being Jesus, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not a son. Besides this, 
We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirit and live? For they disciplined us in a short time, what seemed best to them. But the disciplines, uh, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment of discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Testing is meant to develop you, is meant to grow you, it's meant to bring life. When Abraham chooses to take matters into his own hand with Hagar, the maidservant, objectifies her, abuses her, and creates Ishmael. God says, hey, I'm going to take care of Ishmael. I'm going to bring life to him. But out of this, you will always be at war with this other people. This has brought death in the world. But then when Abraham brings Isaac and is asked to give him to God, and he goes forward and obeys, prepared to sacrifice his son, and then is given his son back. Immediately after that passage, uh, there's this, which seems like just like uh, jumping off into another place, but it actually makes complete sense when you realize that what it's talking about, the, the idea that, uh, that Abraham's faithfulness and his trust has actually brought life. It says this in Genesis 20, 22, or 22, 20 through 24. Genesis 22. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham. So, after these things, being the sacrifice of Isaac and then receiving or passing the test, it says, Behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Boz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildesh, Jildlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rima, bore Teba, Gerham, Tehash, and Makkah. Now, I didn't do that just to show you how educated I am at pronouncing these names, but rather to show that at the end of him being faithful, it says, hey, you know what came out of him passing this test? Was literal life. All of these babies and all of this future come springing out of Abraham saying, I will trust the Lord. Also, testing is meant to encourage you. Which again, for me, sounds counterintuitive. I always think as testing is an ability to mess up. But that's not how it's presented. It's presented like this, uh, James 1, 12, it says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The word for test in this passage 
is the same word for demonstrate. Or let me, I've, I've heard it explained to me like this, and this was powerful for me, and I, I want to bring it forward to you. When you build a bridge, if you're an architect, you have to, before you open that bridge up to the public, find increasingly heavier and heavier trucks to roll over that bridge. And after one passes and you go to a next level of heaviness and the next level of heaviness and the next level of heaviness, and it's referred to as testing the bridge. But the architect who has worked diligently is not testing it in a way of like, will it hold up? But rather he's doing it in a way to demonstrate that it is strong enough to withstand this. You know why you're being tested, brothers and sisters? It's not to discourage you. It's not to be capricious to your life. It's because God is demonstrating to you that your soul is much stronger than you think it is. You have much more capacity to endure than you would choose to do on your own. But after time and time and time again of sitting under testing and holding fast to him, you learn he has actually worked out more faithfulness through his spirit in you than you actually guessed he had to this point. Wherever you are in this moment, you probably have more, more capacity than you think you do. But then also, with testing, it is to be encouraged. It is to bring life. It is to develop character. It does come from the normal life, suffering, and pains of life. But there's also in it something that you do need to be warned of, and it was back in that passage of Hebrews 12. I did not finish. I want to go back and finish it. Starting in verse 12, going through 17, Hebrews 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that the lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit that blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. One of the things we have to hold on, and I would not be faithful to the calling of the Scripture to not put this before my own soul and before yours, is that testing meant to develop your character, meant to grow you, meant to bless you, is also an actual call that has a window of opportunity. And that window does close. you eventually reach, at some point, a point of no return. Now, how this happens is multifaceted and up to God and not me, and I'm grateful for that. 
One way that I just noticed it in just observing humanity, we always kind of think like, ah, like I want to get to a point in life where like, you know, I don't, I, I go after what I want for all this time and then at some point in the 11th hour, I'm going to hold fast to God. But the reality is if you see people as you get further and further into your life, you become more solidified to whoever you are. It's not like you just pivot on a dime and all of a sudden, man, I'm going to trust God with all my heart and soul. The idea and the capacity to trust God with all your heart and soul is a thousand million decisions made over the course of a lifetime. And so by continually choosing to trust myself and trust myself and trust myself and trust myself, eventually you become like Esau. Though you can seek to trust God with tears, it's not given to you. So in this warning, in testing, I invite you not to test God's patience. Don't take testing lightly. Don't take obedience lightly. It's not just that it is your desired way that you would choose to live if you could see all the objective evidence. That's mainly the way we've been presenting it in this series because I think that's mainly the way it's presented in the Scripture. Obedience is life. It's not me asking you to do something that was going to hurt you, and it, but at the same time it's going to get you points to get into the afterlife. It is actually what you most desire, and you have to fight against your own foolishness to choose death to do it. And while that's true, while it should be enticing if we look at it for what it truly is, we also need to take the call extremely seriously and soberly. And so in light of that, just a few practicals. The what can I do? Because again, it says that obedience is going to be written on your hearts by the Spirit. And so on a level, that seems passive to us. That seems autopilot to us. However, in testing, it actually shows the way that you do this is by enduring. And so if there's anything left up to me or anything uh, in my power to endure, what are those things? There's a couple things I think you can do. First of which is you can ask. When Jesus tells his disciples how to pray, he says, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, a couple points there. First, that give us our daily bread is a reference to a psalm in which the psalmist writes, hey, don't give me too little that I steal because I know my heart enough to, if you don't give me enough, I will trust in myself. But yet, don't give me too much that I've become proud and curse your name and think that my ploys and my plans have gotten me this far in life. He says, but rather, give me that sweet spot of daily bread that I continually am able to trust in you, that you're not giving me up to the level of me freaking out and saying I have to do this on my own, but yet also not pushing that level of making me think, I don't actually need you, and I've done this on myself, and I have the power and the capability. But then it says later, hey, then do not lead us into temptation. 
Now, I don't think this is saying, don't lead us into the testing, because I think that just happens. But in that, deliver me from the temptation of my own heart to go about my own way. If you promise me something and I'm going to end up waiting 25 years, you give me 25 years of not giving me the bread, hold on to me. Whatever is left up to you, Lord, I ask that you would hold me. And so you can ask, secondly, you can meditate. We think we read our Bible, at least not everyone, but yeah, like pretty much all of us. We think we read our Bible because it's going to make God pleased with us, if we're honest. Most of us, we want to read it on a daily basis because we feel like that's what God wants of us. Where if it's truly just about making God happy, He doesn't care about you reading your Bible at all. It's not about pleasing Him at all. It's for us. It's to regularly put in front of our eyes the stories of time and time and time again when people cry out to the Lord, He shows up. That when people trust the Lord, life comes out. It is a hundred percent of the time. When people cry out, when they trust, when they hold fast to the Lord, life is given. We talked about a few weeks ago, even Manasseh, who was like, the most horrific of kings, institutionalizes child sacrifice, is brought into captivity, and as he's hanging on hooks, he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord hears him. He says, hey, the results in the chaos that you've brought about yourself is still going to happen, but it, because you've cried out to me, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. And so, holding on and reading and meditating on Scripture, reading and meditating on things like the 23rd Psalm, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm in the care of another. I will never lack for anything. Not just when I'm in green pastures and by still waters, but when I am in the shadow of death, He's leading me to life. And so I read story and story and story and story about those who choose to go their own way reap death and chaos. Those who choose to trust that God is able to care for them, find life. I mean, we all know that learning comes through repetition. You don't just go to school, here's multiplication, got it. Next, let's move on, and eventually you're intrigued by the time you're in fourth grade. Because you need to repeat and sit and meditate and hold on to these truths and these realities. And so you can ask, you meditate, and then lastly, you hold fast. Back to that verse in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he, all, uh, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here's the good news. Every test that you enter, 
God has designed as a good architect. He is not putting over a truck that you cannot withhold. He has set all tests, all suffering, all things that come into your life at a level that you can't sustain. Now he says, you can't do it on your own strength, but I have put my spirit within you, and I will provide for you even at the moment of you can't take anymore, I will pull you out. And so you hold fast. If it feels like you can't take it anymore and God surely needs to show up right now, but yet I just don't feel it or I feel like I'm under the water and I'm losing all sense of oxygen and I need to be pulled up right now, but yet I'm not being pulled up, here's the reality. If you're still in it, it's because your father knows you still have capacity to handle it. And the encouraging thing about that I hope you take, brothers and sisters, is that when you're in the midst of it, when you're wrestling with it, when you're suffering under it, just hold on, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. when I'm in the throes of my depression cycles. I get to the point where I just second by second by second start saying to myself, hold on. Hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. Hold on. Even up to the points where I feel like I'm out. And when he brings me back up, I realize that I have a whole more level of capacity than I ever thought possible. That both has been demonstrated to me in the test and also has been formed in me in the test. Disobedience is believing what God says is not going to be enough for you. So let us choose life. Let us hold fast. Let us endure the test and see the abundance of life flow from it. All the, way, all the time, holding on to the fact that when you fail, there is never an example throughout all of Scripture when a person does not cry out to God and he turns a deaf ear. Let's participate the act of obedience in communion. Communion is a regular, repeated act that again says that I hold on to the fact that Jesus has died, has risen, has passed the test on my behalf, but that I take his body and blood into myself because his spirit is continually growing in me 
to hold fast and endure the test and become the one who is Christ-like in the character of God, to pick up my cross daily, to follow after Him, and find life and life to the full. And so we invite you to come forward, to take of the bread, tear it off, dip in the cup. I've been told to tell people, you, are, you have permission to tear that off. You don't just, you know, you can go in there and just get like a little molecule and try to dip that thing in the water, uh, which apparently is what a lot of you are doing. Um, go ahead. If you end up taking half a loaf, pray. You know, the Spirit just needed you. You knew you needed a lot of Jesus. And, um, and we'll be able to know, wow, that person's really struggling right now. Um, but go ahead, take a big hunk. Uh, they'll be gluten-free in the middle. We ask you to come down the middle and return the sides. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for myself, for my brothers and sisters, Lord, for all of those who are in a place where they are struggling to hold on right now. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them in the reality that you have designed and are showing them that their character is more formed than they would want to know on their own choice but that also that you are holding on to them. You will not let them go. You will not let them bear more than that they can take. And that you will bring life on the other side. I pray for those who are not here. That will be. I pray, Lord, that we could meditate on these truths, that we could ask for your help, and that we could practice and learn to become people who are shaped by these stories and these realities that help us know to hold fast brings life and to let go and to go about taking care of ourselves is going to bring death and chaos every time. And so, Lord, let us hold fast to you as we hold fast to the bread drenched in the blood that is the one who passed the test on our behalf and is fulfilling us to hold fast to you as we move towards glory. In Jesus' name, amen.